0: Good morning, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that we don't have to go pawing around in the dark trying to figure you out. You've made yourself known. And in the pages of scripture, we have the gospel preached to us and we see Christ standing forth clearly, revealing the Father, making the way known to us. And Father, this is so much grace. And so we praise you for it and thank you. And Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we open your word again. And we ask that you would open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. wonder how many of you remember the story of Nadab and Abihu from Leviticus 10. If you know this story, then you will remember that Nadab and Abihu were sons of Aaron. Both of them were priests... During the time of Moses, Moses had delivered to the priests precise instructions from God about how they were to approach God at the tabernacle. Nadab and Abihu, though, two sons of Aaron, priests, ignore those instructions. And it said, the Bible says they go and they offer strange fire before the Lord, which appeared to be some kind of an incense offering that God had not commanded them to bring. And as they drew near to bring this offering, the Bible says that fire came out from the presence of the Lord and incinerated them, killing them instantly. And then you get this word from the Lord. God says, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Nadab and Abihu did not treat him as holy. Nadab and Abihu did not honor him. And God incinerates them. And they die instantly. This text is one of the most fearful displays of God's holiness in all of Scripture. I think that's probably why many people, even Christians, haven't heard much about it. I dare say that many Christians will go their whole lives without hearing any sermons on Leviticus 10. And what happened with Nadab and Abihu. I'm not aware of any... Hymns written about it. Does anybody know any hymns about Nadab? Maybe there is one. I'm just unaware of it. I I don't know of any hymns. I am aware of one song written about Leviticus 10 and about Nadab and Abihu, but the song is not written or sung by Christians. The song was written by two unbelievers in a band that I used to love. I still actually like, but I got to know them years ago. But it was by a band called the Indigo Girls. In 1987, they wrote this song titled Strange Fire. And the entire song is a meditation on Leviticus 10, except they don't believe in Leviticus 10, but it's all about Leviticus 10. I'm going to read you some of the lyrics of that song. They say this, I come to you with strange fire. I make an offering of love. The incense of my soul is burned by the fire. In my blood, which means they have strange fire to bring. The strange fire is burning in their blood, it's representing their sin. They know that there are things about them that are not what God commanded, but they're bringing their strange fire before the Lord anyway. I come with a softer answer to the questions that lie in your path. I want to harbor you from the anger and find a refuge from the wrath. Basically, they're saying if you're reading Leviticus 10, There's a holy God there who incinerates people who are sinful. But I'm bringing strange fire, but I'm bringing you a refuge from the wrath because the God that we believe in doesn't do that. This is a message of love, love that moves from the inside out, love that never grows tired. I come to you with strange fire. Then listen to this. Mercenaries of the shrine, who are you to speak for God? With haughty eyes and lying tongues and hands that shed innocent blood. Who delivered you the power to interpret Calvary? You gamble away our freedom to gain your own authority. The mercenaries of the shrine, you know who that is? Me. (laughs) Jim. It's preachers. It's these guys who get paid to preach, right? The mercenaries of the shrine. Who are you to speak for God? Who are you to interpret the cross to to be about God's wrath against sin? Who are you? To interpret the cross, to limit my freedom to do whatever I want. When you learn to love yourself, you will dissolve all the stones that are cast. It's not Jesus who keeps you from being stoned, like when they tried to cast the stones at the woman who committed adultery. It's not Jesus who does that, it's learning to love yourself. When you learn to love yourself, you will dissolve all the stones that are cast. You will learn to burn the icing sky and to melt the waxen mask. Yes, to have the gift of true release, this is a peace that will take you higher. I come to you with my offering. I bring you strange fire. The message is clear. The strange fire that the indigo girls offer is not burning incense, but a fire burning in their blood. It's a reference to sin. They know that that fire they bring is not something God commanded, but they mean to offer it anyway. Why? Why? Because on their reckoning, God isn't really the God of Leviticus 10. God isn't really as harsh or as wrathful as Leviticus 10 would would indicate. On the contrary, our sin and God's holiness are really not at odds with each other. They can dwell together. And any mercenary of the shrine who tells you otherwise is is just trying to control you and take away your freedom. So as a Christian, you listen to this. It's, it's easy to get offended or put off by lyrics like this. And so you think, you know, how dare they? How dare they make God into their own image and suggest that God's own holiness can go together with our sin? So maybe you hear this and it's easy to take offense at it. But I wonder if we've really stopped to consider how much our own lives may be communicating a really similar message to that song. We know what the Bible says about God's holiness. We know that the Bible says that because God is holy, we must be holy. And yet, how often do we choose to walk in our own sin anyway? We know that God's holy presence in our lives is incompatible with willful disobedience, and yet, we do it anyway. And every time we do, we're in essence singing that same song, saying, I'm coming to you with my strange fire. So here's the question. Does your life reflect a passion for the holiness of God? Or does it reveal a kind of a lackadaisical attitude? An attitude that says, I'm not going to worry about holiness right now. I'm going to bring my strange fire, and God can just figure out how to get along with that. Well, guess what? God is not going to get along with that. He says, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. We can either reconcile reconcile ourselves to who God is as he actually is or find ourselves incinerated at the judgment. I've said it before. This is from Hebrews 12, 14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And no person... Here or anywhere is going to be an exception to that. So if you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We are going to study one verse today. (laughs) Somebody likes that. One verse. We got a Puritan in here. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. Now last week we looked at the second half of chapter 6 where Paul's telling the Corinthians that they're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers because a believer has no more in common with an unbeliever than light has in common with darkness. When it comes to the most important questions of life, believers and unbelievers have very little in common. And for that reason, believers can't yoke themselves to unbelievers who would pull them away from following Christ, who would pull them away from holiness. But the verse that we're focusing on today, chapter 7 and verse 1, it's an extension of that argument from last week and a transition to the rest of chapter 7. But the heart of what's going on in chapter 7 is it's a call to holiness. So we're looking at this one verse, and the focus of the verse is holiness, which is Um, sometimes called sanctification. So if you see the title of the message, the title is simply sanctification. And so the text to us is going to reveal to us three things about sanctification. One, the foundation of sanctification. Two, the substance of sanctification. Three, the progress of sanctification. If you want, you can substitute the word holiness in there and say the foundation of holiness, the substance of holiness, the progress of holiness. But it's, it's, Sanctification and holiness are referring to the same thing. So the first thing here is the foundation of sanctification. Everybody look at verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now I want you to focus on that first phrase, since we have these promises, beloved. Since we have these promises, beloved. Notice that Paul addresses the Corinthians as beloved. There's no question that this is a term of endearment on Paul's part. It, it literally refers to the Corinthians as those who, those people who are loved. Question is, is loved by whom? Is it talking about they're loved by Paul or God? I don't think we really have to choose here. Um, Paul uses this term in both ways elsewhere, and I think it's possible he may have both ideas in mind here. Paul loves the Corinthians. And as the latter part of chapter 6 shows, God loves the Corinthians. So they are beloved. That love is no doubt revealed in what God has promised to do for his people. Notice he says there, God's promises to his people are the foundation for holiness. The foundation of sanctification. Notice he says, therefore, because we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Unfortunately, the ESV leaves out. The therefore, but there is a therefore in the text, which points you back to, ch- to the end of chapter 6. And you can see that those promises that God made at the end of chapter 6 are the foundation for the holiness that Paul commends to them to walk in in chapter 7. So we have to think about and look more, a little more closely at what were those promises in chapter 6. Well, you'll see at least three Promises there. You see a first promise related to God's covenant presence. It says in in verse 16, uh, chapter 6, verse 16, it says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. We know uh, from last week that that's a quotation combining a text from Ezekiel and I believe uh, Leviticus. Um, But it's combining two texts there. But he's quoting the Old Testament. And in the Old Covenant, God dwelled among his people in the temple in Jerusalem. And in the New Covenant... God dwells within his people through the presence of the indwelling spirit. And this promise is anticipating this new covenant presence of God through the Holy Spirit among his people. You've also got a promise about God having a covenant people. It says in verse 16 as well, I will be their God. They shall be my people. And so that's the language of promise from the Old Testament that was often applied to the Israelites. In the Old Covenant, God called the Israelites to be his covenant people on the basis of their descent from Abraham and the promises that God made to Abraham. In the New Covenant, God calls not just descendants of Abraham, but he calls Jews and Gentiles to be his people. Based on their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you believe in Christ. You're a part of God's covenant people. A part of that covenant community. So a promise about God's covenant presence. A promise about God's covenant people. And then you've got this statement of covenant adoption. Look at verse 17. I will welcome you. Verse 18. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. Says the Lord Almighty. Which means all of us believing Gentiles who once were without God, without hope in the world, is, this text says we have now been adopted as sons and daughters into God's very own family. And, and we remember from last week, Paul's taking the very language from the Davidic covenant where God says of the Messiah, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. Now those of us who are in the Messiah, guess what? We are sons and daughters of God. So there's covenant presence, covenant people, covenant adoption. All of us who have trusted in Christ are already experiencing these blessings in our lives. These promises from the Old Testament have already come true for us in some measure. The promises are fulfilled, and it's because of those promises that Paul is going to say we must live holy lives. That's the foundation. Why? Well, notice those promises have everything to do with the presence of God among his people. And it's because the presence of God among his people, because that's true, that entails that we must live and be holy just as he is holy. God will be treated as holy and he will be honored in the midst of his people. And he is in the midst of us if you are a member of his people. His very presence among his people compels holiness in his people. It's the foundation of sanctification. Psalm 5.4 says it this way, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. If God is dwelling within us, evil can't stay. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 14. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Guess who the consuming fire is? Yahweh. Yahweh. Who can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? This is who can live with that. He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. Who can dwell with the Almighty? Those who are holy as he is holy. That's who. God's presence among his people compels holiness. It compels a certain kind of behavior from his people. When a person displays an absence of concern for holiness in their lives, it often reveals an absence of God's covenant presence in their lives. Where God's presence is, there is a concern for holiness. Where that is absent you have to wonder if God's presence is absent as well. But God's presence compels holiness. You know, in July, the Burke family, my family, we were gone for about two and a half weeks for vacation. We spent a part of time, part of that time in my hometown, and we spent a good bit of time while we were there at the pool that I used to work at as a teenager. We took the kids there, and we went swimming. And, and I love this swimming pool because... Well, it's where I learned how to do all my dives. Um, And I was good. (laughs) I could do gainers and flips and all the rest. I know it's funny to imagine now, but I could do it all. And uh, when we were there with the kids, I did it again. I pulled out my old moves. I belly flopped a few times, but I did them. And so I was going off the end of this board. I love this this board. Um, It's different than like a... Like your normal backyard pool board it's it's a little bit it's not a high dive but it's a little bit higher so it really throws you out there and so we were having a good time out there but it is high enough that my eight-year-old lucy did not want to go off the end of the diving board she just didn't want to do it i wanted her to jump we were all pulling for her to jump and so she calls me over to the deep end to be there close so that she could you know have the courage to jump in. I would be right there. I could could catch her. So I swam over. I'm treading water there in the deep end. And I coax her over the edge. She jumps in. And she did what we were all pulling for her to do. She did what I was pulling for her to do. And you know why? Because I was there. If I wasn't there, she wouldn't have done it. My presence was compelling and encouraging behavior that she otherwise would not have been able to do. The presence of daddy in the pool, calling her forth, telling her the way she needed to go, made all the difference. Now, this analogy is going to break down if you try to press it too hard. But you get the point, right? The presence of God in our lives compels and indeed enables a certain kind of behavior in us. It enables holiness in us. God's presence compels us to be holy just as he is holy. If you have the spirit of God inside you, the covenant presence of God inside you, you have everything that you need for life and godliness. Everything. Philippians 2.12 says it this way, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do For his good pleasure. What makes you will and do his good pleasure? God's presence in you. It's the same thing Paul is saying here. Because we have these promises. We are to be cleansed from all evil. And to complete sanctification. The foundation of sanctification is the new covenant presence of the spirit within us. If you are a believer then the spirit of God is indwelling you right now. Giving you the will and the desire to do what you are called to do. If you're not a believer, then that inner compulsion to repent from sin and to walk from righteousness is absent in you. And you will have no ability to do, do what God has called you to do. God enables the obedience that he commands from his people. The only way to get connected to that power is to have the Spirit, and the only way to have the Spirit is to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus alone to save you. That's it. Without that foundation, there's no power because that's where all the power comes from. It comes from the presence of God in his covenant people. So now we know what the foundation is. The next thing is what is the substance? So the foundation of sanctification, but look secondly at the substance of sanctification. Everybody look at verse 1 again. He says, since we have these promises, foundation, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. There's the substance. Notice especially that second phrase, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Notice that this is an exhortation. It's a command. This is telling you what you must do because God's presence is within you. It's telling us that we must cleanse ourselves from everything that defiles us. Now, many of you will recognize this language of cleansing and defilement as deriving from the Old Testament purity codes. And you'll recognize if you're reading in the book of, I don't know, Leviticus, um, there's a lot there in that book about what it means to be clean and unclean. Any person who was unclean, like a leper or like somebody who touched a dead body, would have to spend a certain amount of time outside the camp ...of God's people and away from God's holy presence among his people. The only way for a leper who was declared unclean... ...to come back into the camp would be for the priest to examine the leper... ...and then declare him to be clean from leprosy. That which defiles the skin and makes it unclean... ...has to be removed before that person is allowed to come back into the pre- God's presence. Likewise, I think Paul is saying that because we are in God's presence... We must also cleanse ourselves from any and everything that defiles us. But notice here, what defiles us and separates us from God is not a sickness, but sin. Look at the verse. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. He says we're to be cleansed in both body and spirit, which is a reference to the fact that sin has both inward and outward components. Which means we can sin in what we do, and we can sin in what we think or believe or desire. Your doing is visible because it's done with the body. Your thinking and believing and desiring are invisible because that's what you do, that's what's going on inside of you. But the key thing to note here is that sin is not just about what you do, it's also about what you desire. It's about what's unseen going on inside of you. John Calvin comments on this verse. He says it this way. Quote, he would have us, therefore, pure from defilements, not merely inward, such as, have, such as have God as their witness, but also outward, such as fall under the observation of men. End quote. Inward, outward. Sin has both components. It's affecting you right now in both ways. So if you just clean up the outside without cleaning up the inside, you're a Pharisee. If you clean up the inside without cleaning up the outside, then you're a hypocrite. You don't want to be either one of those kinds of persons. You want to understand that God means for us to be holy from top to bottom. Inside, outside. Integrity. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And look what he says entire sanctification looks like. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Inward, outward components, spirit, soul, and body. What you can see, what you can't see. All of it has to be dealt with. All of it has to be holy. How many of you parents have ever instructed your children to go and clean their room? And when you go and inspect the room, you look at it, and it looks pretty clean. But you look a little closer, and you see that the closet's not closed all the way. And there's a little bulge coming from the blanket covering up underneath the bed. And you go and investigate, and you discover that they've taken the mess and not cleaned it up, but have transferred the mess to in the closet and under the bed or someplace out of sight. Does that count as cleaning up the room? Mm, some of you are like, I don't know. For me, it does No. <laughs> it doesn't count. That doesn't count. Cleaning the room means cleaning both the places that are seen and the places that are unseen. I, at my house, I have a rule that the children are not supposed to be eating in the basement without permission. By the way, I found some chips in there last night. <laughs> Y'all are all in bed, and I found those Chips. I did not plan this. Um, I don't allow eating in the basement. Why? Because whenever they eat down there, they inevitably drop pieces of food down there. I picked up a piece of chip off the floor. No joke. I had already written this illustration, and this happened last night. The reason we have this rule is because they'll forget their food down there and not clean it up. And guess what happens if you don't clean up food in the basement? You can attract pests. You might see a mouse or two make their way down there. So we don't leave food out in the basement. But what, what, what if I told my kids, hey, clean up. Go clean up all the food out of the basement. And they respond by hiding all the food under the couch. And I don't notice. And weeks go by and they're just hiding food under the couch. Is that room clean? It's not clean. We have to have the seen and the unseen places clean. Otherwise, you're going to have critters coming from all over the place. And it's the same thing with us. You're going to have to cleanse your inside and your outside if you're really going to address what Paul's addressing here in terms of holiness. Now, keep in mind, God is already treating you as clean based on the finished work of Christ. He's already treating you that way because of what Christ did for you on the cross. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. In other words, God is already treating you a certain way, even though you're not all the way that way yet. But you're being treated that way. So the question is, if we've already been cleansed from our sin through Christ, then why would Paul tell us to cleanse ourselves from everything that defiles us? Well, the answer is because even though Christ has saved us from the penalty of sin, He has not yet saved us from the presence of sin. There is still sin in the world, and there is still sin in you and in me. Its power has been decisively broken through Christ so that we're no longer slaves to it, but its remnants are still there. And we are to contend against it until glory. And that's what it means to cleanse yourselves It means that you turn from sin and get it out of your life. So let's get really practical here. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. You don't have to pray about that. You know this is God's will for you. Your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. This says you have to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. In holiness and honor. It also says that you're not to have lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't know God. Well, guess what that is? It's a call for holiness in both mind. Lustful passion like the Gentiles. You're not supposed to have that in your mind. And it's a call for holiness in your body. Because you possess your vessel. And sanctification and honor. There's an inward element, outward element. Both are there. What that means, among other things, is that you're gonna to have to stop what you're doing, that anything that you're doing in your life that constitutes sexual immorality. You know what? Pornography falls in the category of sexual immorality. You say, there's no other person involved with that. Yeah, actually, there, there, there are other people involved with that. They may, may not be in the room with you, but there are other people involved with this. But it doesn't matter. It's still sexual immorality. And Paul is saying that you are to be holy, which means you separate yourself from it both in mind and in body. It means you stop using pornography if you're using it. Because you're sinning with your body, you're sinning with your mind. And it won't be enough just to be stop using it. You're going to have to stop desiring it. The doing of sexual immorality and the desiring of it are both sinful. And if you're to cleanse yourself, you're going to have to turn away from both. If you aren't interested in quitting both, then you're not interested in knowing God. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this, if you reject sanctification, that person is not rejecting man, but God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. You want to have God without holiness? You can't. You don't get to make up the terms of your renewal. If you have him, you will have holiness, or you won't have him. Here's a different application. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2.8. I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. The command is directed to the posture that the men take when they come into this room for worship. Paul wants them to lift holy hands. And we know from scripture that lifting hands is a common posture for prayer for the direct addresses that we make to God in praise and in entreaty. So it's what you're doing when you stand in corporate worship, praising and worshiping God. But there's a really interesting reference to the lifting of hands in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah says, So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. So, the lifting of the hands is a common posture for worship, but guess what the hands signify? They signify what you do, they signify your deeds. Paul says, I want the men in every place to pray, but I want them to lift holy hands when they come into this room and the deeds that we do with our hands can either be pure or they can be defiled and God is calling on men to pray while lifting these hands that are holy telling them that their public expressions of worship must be flowing from a life marked by holiness their hearts must be cleansed from anger and wrath and dissension their hands must be clean from the deeds that flow from anger and wrath and dissension in other words, God is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth and not those who are worshiping them in their hypocrisy. So men, really everyone, but Paul singling out men in this text, God cares very little for your performances in this room if you're living like the devil at home. God help us. If we are showing up to worship here, singing the songs, and taking the communion, but our lives at home and with our wife and with our kids is marked by anger and surliness. This text is telling us, commanding us, we have to cleanse ourselves from this, which means we have to turn away from anger, turn away from your foul responses to provocations. God wants you to raise holy hands in this room, not hands that have been stained. By disobedient anger and wrath and dissension. Which means God wants you pure in body and in spirit. Which is what Paul commands in 2 Corinthians 7. Yes, God is at work in you. Yes, all of this comes from grace. But notice he says cleanse yourselves. The grace of God does not erase your agency and responsibility to make efforts to cleanse yourself from ungodliness. If you think your efforts to cleanse yourself from ungodliness are at odds with the grace of God working in you, you don't understand the Bible. Paul brings those two together. He says, this is what's true, now you do it. You take pains with this. The foundation of sanctification, the substance of sanctification, finally, the progress of sanctification. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You can see the progress of sanctification revealed in that last phrase, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Holiness, obviously, is a quality. Its main characteristic, I believe, is the idea of being set apart from sin for God's use. That's what holiness is all about, to be set apart from sin for God's use. Just as the vessels in in the temple in Jerusalem were holy, they were set apart from common use and were set apart for ceremonial purposes in the service of the temple. Same thing with us. We're also to be set apart from sin and set apart for service to God. We are to be holy just as God himself is holy. And yet, Paul says, we are to bring holiness to completion. What does that mean? Well, there's a sense in which we've all been, we've all experienced what the theologians call the definitive sanctification. You have texts in scripture like 1 Corinthians 6.11 that says you were washed, you were sanctified. There is a sense in which... You've been, through the Holy Spirit, definitively set apart for God's use. But you also see in Scripture another way of talking about sanctification. Another sense in which we understand sanctification not to be a static event, but an ongoing process. Because we're all still contending against the canceled sin in our lives. There's a process of sanctification unfolding. It's a process that admits progress toward a goal. Final and complete sanctification, either when we die or when the Lord returns. But until then, it's a long slog. It's a, progressive, it's a progression towards greater and greater holiness that the Holy Spirit is working in us and that we are embracing if we are His people. Notice the last four words in the verse. They're really crucial because they're revealing to us the means by which we're going to be sanctified. He says... Bringing uh, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, which I think we could very well translate as by the fear of God. How are you going to be sanctified? How are you going to be having the strength to let go of idols in your life? How are you going to let go of your own agenda? How are you going to let go of sin that so easily entangles? How are we going to get past any of that? By fearing God. By fearing God more than we fear man. By fearing God more than we fear the loss of our comforts. By fearing God more than we fear anything. The fear of God is what's going to drive all the demons away. Which means that we're going to have to grow in our fear of the Lord if we want to grow in holiness. The more you are fearing man or fearing the loss of, you're anxious about other things, the less holy you're going to be able to be. You're going to have to, if you want to grow in holiness, you've got to grow in the fear of God. And your sanctification is not going to happen all at once. It is going to be the fight of your life. But you don't have to despair because every bit of your fight is underwritten by the new covenant presence of the Spirit in your life. And So we don't have to give up on this because God's not going to give up on this in us. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said about transformation in chapter 3 we were looking at chapter 3 in in second Corinthians Paul says this in chapter 3 verse 18 he says and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit you notice and remember that the verb is passive and also progressive The work of transformation is a process that unfolds over the course of a believer's life. It's the same thing that Paul's talking about in 7.1. It's why we bring holiness to completion. Because it's in process right now. It's not completed yet. This is where we get our doctrine of progressive sanctification from. It's from texts like this in the Bible. That's what this is. Your your regeneration by the Spirit happens in a moment. But your sanctification by the Spirit occurs over the course of your life. Not all at once. Which ought to be really encouraging to every single one of us who still struggles with sin. We all know that we're works in progress. It's, It's not over yet. But here's the thing. It's not a static process. It's not a process without progress Because sanctification is from one degree of glory to another. Our transformation into the image of Christ progresses from lesser glory to greater glory. In other words, we actually grow. I'm just emphasizing this because I'll hear sometimes people say, you know, I really struggle with a certain sin. But what they mean is is entrenched patterns of defeat. They're not really struggling. They're just losing. This is talking about real progress from glory to glory real progress in holiness that doesn't mean we become sinless instantly obviously transformation is about perfection it's not about perfection but about direction in your life so you're not going to be perfect before glory but you are going to have a brand new direction in your life you're going to be headed towards a certain goal and if you're not pointed towards that goal You may not have the covenant presence of the Spirit. But those who have the Spirit have every bit of reason to be confident that God is going to make bring them through. So as we finish, let me ask you just a few questions here. You can self-diagnose. Answer these questions for yourself. All of us need to be blood earnest, serious about this. Remember, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. So here's the questions. Are there any sinful patterns in your life that you need to turn away from? If there are, I exhort you in the name of Jesus to turn away from them. Are there any sinful attitudes in your heart that you need to turn away from? Sinful desires? Sinful beliefs? If there are, I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus to turn away from them. Don't let them rule over you for one more second. Third question. Do you bristle at sermons about holiness? Do you resent the fact that following Jesus means having to give up the things that God's word identifies as sinful? Do you fail to love and to cherish God's holiness? If you answered yes to any or all of those final questions, are you sure that you know Christ? Paul says that if you've rejected God's purposes of holiness in your life, you're not rejecting man. You're not rejecting just me. You're rejecting the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And that means that If if you're in a position of rejecting God's holiness, you've rejected him. You need to repent of your sin, and you need to trust in Christ and be saved. If you hate God's holiness, don't let yourself be deceived into thinking you're a Christian. You're not. You need to repent and believe. If you are an unbeliever here this morning, and you know that you have never trusted Christ, this is the good news of the gospel. None of us are holy. All of us are broken. You're sitting in a big room filled with sinners. But God has made a way for us to be saved and a way for us to be holy. He sent his very own son to die on the cross, to take the penalty that we deserve, death. Jesus rose again three days later to offer us eternal life. All of this is done for you. You can't earn it. All you can do is turn from your sin and turn to Christ in faith, which means you just need to believe. If you trust in Christ, the Bible says that God will save you. And he will begin the process of sanctification in your life. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray you take this word, seal it to our hearts. Help us to believe it. Help us not to be lackadaisical in striving for holiness. Help us to hate ungodliness, to turn from defilement, to renounce it in our hearts, to renounce it in our deeds. Help us to be pure in body and soul. We know we're not there yet, but we are striving towards the upward prize. Help us Lord. Help us see real fruit and real growth in holiness. And put a steely resolve in your people not to give up. Father, I pray for those who are here who don't know you, who are not Christians. Some here know they're not. I pray you bring them to repentance. I also pray for those who are here who are hypocrites. They have called themselves a Christian. They may even have gone through the waters of baptism, but they know better. And they know they don't know you. Their life speaks against their profession. I pray you would bring them to yourself and bring them to a confident faith in Jesus. Lord, we know that you love us. We know that you're gracious. And your intentions towards us, even in moments like this, are gracious. So we pray for your mercy. We pray it in Jesus' name.